Okay, our scripture text this morning is Daniel chapter 6, verses 19 through 22. This is the last in the series on Daniel. We'll begin a series on the I am statements of Jesus. And you can, uh, I wrote about that in the newsletter if you're interested in a little bit of a foretaste, but we'll be working through the I am statements throughout Lent and into Easter itself. So we finish Daniel today, Daniel chapter 6, verses 19 through 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then at break of day, the king got up and hurried to the den of lions. When he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out anxiously to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you faithfully serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel then said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In uh, Wendell Berry's novel, Jaber Crow, the protagonist in the story, Jaber Crow, the namesake, recounts uh, the day he arrives at, at an orphanage. And its orphanage is called the Good Shepherd Orphanage. And the head of that, the superintendent, is a guy named Brother Whitespade. And Barry writes this, uh, Jaber uh, expresses this in the story of that first encounter with Brother Whitespade. He writes, I remember, him, I remember meeting face-to-face -face across the top of a large desk the superintendent himself, Brother Whitespade, one of the crossest of Christians, who said in a big, pretty voice, Ah, this will be Mr. Crow. Brother Whitespade's desk was as wide as a field. It was as wide maybe as an ocean. For a minute or two, I didn't think I could see across it. And then I could see Brother Whitespade over there, looking at me pointedly through a pair of steel-rimmed eyeglasses and smiling in a way that gave me no comfort. His stare was the most concentrated part of him. Otherwise, he was a soft man with a smooth face, wavy hair, and a tight collar. But all that he seemed to be gathered up in his eyes and pointed across the wide desk at me. I knew all of a sudden that I was facing a man who was filled with power and that I had no power, none. I could not have told you this then, for the knowledge did not come to me in words. It came to me as a hollow place that opened slowly and ached under my breastbone. I knew that I had come there by no thought of my own. I was a long way removed from any thought of my own. I had no thought. I was who? A little somebody who could have been anybody. Looking across that wide desk at Brother Whitespade, I knew that I could not even leave until he told me, to go. Have you ever been there? Been there in that kind of power dynamic? Been there as that person across from the desk of power? And all of us, I think, somewhere along our lives have felt that, felt that very same feeling of the man behind the desk, of, of confronting that power. It could be in the workplace. It could have been at school. Somebody who, who held a power over you. But a lot of times in our society, we feel that particularly when we engage with the government, with the state, 
For it has this inherent power, right? We have ceded to it the, the power. It, it is a monopoly of sorts. Sometimes you've got to work through it, and there's no other choice but to work through it. If you've ever waited in line at the DMV or tried to resolve a problem at the post office, in a sense, you, you know what it's like to be across that type of power. You know, you've got the wrong forms. You've got to go back. You've got to do it. You know you have to do it. And sometimes that happens in really acute ways, in, in, in special ways where the state has particular power. You know, and um, I, one time I wanted to be a district attorney, and, and one of the things that district attorneys love is a thing called the grand jury, right? You have the grand jury is the government's dream. It's a place where you alone, as the district attorney or other prosecuting attorney, you have the entire arena. There is no defense. You call the witnesses. You do the whole thing. There's no one speaking against you, and that's often where charges emerge against someone, and there's an old saying about a grand jury. You know, that you could indict a ham sandwich because, you know, you, it's your show. There's this whole part of the government known as the administrative state or the administrative law. I remember learning and taking courses on it in law school. And really, essentially, it is unconstitutional. It doesn't really exist. It, it, and there's no power for it. This whole group of agencies that make laws and rules and regulations, we've done it because of the massive pragmatic needs of the modern state. But sometimes those powers are abused. Elon Musk is right now claiming that about the SEC, that they're harassing him in an investigation because they don't like him. They're using the power of the state against him. Our former governor is suggesting the same thing kind of happened with the attorney general's office in our state. President Nixon used the IRS as part of his dirty tricks campaign. I knew all of a sudden that I was facing a man who was filled with power and that I had no power, none. That's how it feels when you sit across the man behind the desk. Well, on our text this morning... Something like that happens here in this text. There's a, that similar dynamic. It's a story of a man who sat across the man behind the desk. But in this case, in this story, that man was Daniel. Daniel was that man staring across the power of the state, the power of the bureaucrats of Babylon. And although on one level the story is about political intrigue, about abuse of state power, there's something going on below that at a much deeper level. For this is a story about the clash of kings, about the law of God being pitted against the law of the Medes and Persians, against the law of King Darius. And here's the big idea I want you to get this morning. Here's the big idea. God delivers those who follow his law. God delivers those who follow his law. And I want you to see how that big idea emerges from our story. We'll use our methodology. We'll look at the story. We'll grasp it. And then we'll ask ourselves, what does that story say to us today? How do we apply it in our lives in the 21st century? And as we look at that story, we'll do it. Three headings, three words. The outline is simple. Precept, prayer, and protection. Precept, prayer, and protection. So let's first look at the big story of our text. And that first story word is the word precept. Our story begins with a law. But really, before that, 
It begins with a conspiracy. Daniel 6, verse 6, so the presidents and satraps conspired. They conspired. Now, who were these dudes? Who were these presidents and satraps? Well, they were like the bureaucrats. They were the people who made the administrative state of Babylon function. And really, Daniel was one of them. He was a bureaucrat himself. He was helped to make the state of Babylon function. But these presidents and satraps, they didn't like Daniel at all. And as Darlene mentioned, the reason for that was they were jealous of him. That's what led them to conspire against him. They were jealous of him, and they were jealous of him for two reasons. First, he was more successful than they were. And secondly, he was more ethical than they were. Daniel 6, verses 3 and 4. Soon Daniel distinguished himself above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. The king planned to appoint him over the whole kingdom. So the presidents and the satraps tried to find grounds for complaint against Daniel in connection with the kingdom. But they could find no grounds for complaint or any corruption because he was faithful and no negligence or corruption could be found in him. They were jealous because of his success and because of his integrity. They could find no fault in him. So what do you do in that case? You conspire. You find a way to entrap him, and that's exactly what they did. And what they did, especially cruel, is that they identified something they knew they could rely on in Daniel, and that was his faith. They targeted his faith to entrap him. Daniel 6, verse 5, the men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And so that's what they did. They conspired and they plotted to come up with a way to entrap Daniel through a creation of a law, a precept, to capture and entrap Daniel. And what that was, as Darlene mentioned, the, the law was very simple. What they decided to do, they got together, they said, let's pass a law. We'll pass a law that says for 30 days there's a moratorium on praying to anyone but the king. You can't pray to anyone but King Darius himself. And they made sure it was part of that special language of the law and the Medes and the Persians. And so they wrote up the law, they presented it to the king, and the king signed the law. And the conspiracy was launched. The law of the king, in this case King Darius, was there. It was put into place through a precept, a precept that prohibited prayer. And prayer is our second story point, because what happens next is that Daniel does what? He learns about this precept, and what does he do, ironically? Right? He prays about it. He prayed to God about it. Daniel 6.10, although Daniel knew. And by the way, that's important. Daniel knew this law had been passed. There's no doubt in the text. He was aware of it. Daniel knew that the document had been signed. He continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room open towards Jerusalem and get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him, just as he had done previously. Daniel broke the law. He knowingly, willingly broke the law. He violated the law of King Darius, choosing instead to follow the higher law, the law of God. And guess what those other bureaucrats of Babylon were doing? They were there ready 
They had their cell phones on, right? They, were, they, they captured the moment. They saw Daniel praying, and they ran off to tell the king. You know, they posted it on their social media accounts, and they made sure everybody knew what Daniel had done. They go to the king, and guess how the king reacted? He was not angry. He was distressed, as Darlene mentioned in the children's sermon. He was actually distressed and disturbed by this. This is not what he wanted to happen. And, and he tried to save Daniel. Daniel 6, 14, when the king heard the, ch the charge, he was very much distressed. He was determined to save Daniel until the sun went down. He made every effort to rescue him, but even the king couldn't rescue him because the bureaucrats had tied him up as well. They had made sure this was the law of the Medes and Persians, and they told the king, king, if you change this, you will be breaking the law. You can't do it. Your hands are tied. Daniel must be dealt with. And they seemed like they had gotten him. He was arrested, as, he, as Darlene mentioned, thrown into the den of lions. And we read this in verse 17. A stone, you got to like that, a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet. And it seems like the story's over. They passed the law, the precept, Daniel prayed, he broke it, and now he's in the lion's den. It seems like it's all over, but then comes the last part of our story, the protection. And this is really fascinating, because as the king does this, right, we know he's distressed, he doesn't want this to happen. And what does the king do? The king actually prays to God. The king violates his own law by praying to God. Verse 16, the king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you faithfully serve, deliver you. He invokes God to deliver Daniel. And God answered the prayer. The king got up the next morning after a distressful night. He ran to the tomb, if you will. He ran to the lion's den to where the stone was. And there the stone rolled away, in essence. And he called forth Daniel from there. And Daniel was alive. He was untouched, not a scrape on him. The lions hadn't hurt him at all. The king was rejoicing. Daniel was rejoicing over this. And then the king turned to the bureaucrats. And it did not end well for them. They ended up in the fate that Daniel was supposed to have received. They went into the lion's den, and they did not come out. And then at the end of the story, King Darius passes a new law, a better precept. And this is what it said. Then King Darius, this is Daniel 6, 25 through 28. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples and nations of every language throughout the whole world, May you have abundant prosperity. I make a decree. And all my royal dominion, people should tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion has no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on the earth. For he has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel, so this Daniel prospered during the, day, during the reign of Darius the, and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And that's how our story ends. It ends with the God of Israel triumphing over the king Darius in this clash of kings. God's law triumphs over Darius's law. There is one true king, and that's our big idea. God delivers those who follow his law. That's our story. It's an amazing story. It's a glorious story, but the question comes home to us. 
What do we learn from it? How do we apply this extraordinary story? Are there any lessons in it for us today as we live as 21st century Christians here in the United States? Well, I think we can draw a couple of lessons from this. Two lessons this morning. The first one is this. We learn a little bit here, I think, about civil disobedience. About civil disobedience. We learn that there are times when believers have to choose between following the laws of the state and the laws of God. This is part of our faith. There's these conflicts can arise. We learn about civil disobedience. This is what Daniel faced, right? He knew what the law was. It was a legitimately passed law of the state. It might have been a stupid law, but there are a lot of stupid laws, right? So this is a stupid law, and Daniel knew it was the law, and Daniel knowingly, willingly broke it. He prayed to God when he knew it was against the law to do so, he defied the law of the state, the law of the king. He followed the law of God. He disobeyed. This is civil disobedience. And of course, this is not the only place we see that in the scriptures, right? There are many places where we see this conflict, this clash of kings, right? Between Lord as king, God as king, God as lawgiver, and the state and how those things interact. And sometimes believers are called to disobey the law of the state. We see it in Exodus, right, with the Hebrew midwives. What did they do? They were told by Pharaoh that they had to kill the Hebrew male children, but they decided not to do it. They decided to actively disobey, and God approved of their actions. We see it in the book of Joshua. We see it with Rahab, right? Rahab lied to government officials. She committed treason, if you will, against the state to help the people of God. We saw it earlier in this book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They were told they had to bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar, the golden image, and they refused to do it, and they suffered the consequences of the fiery furnace. But God saved them. And we see it in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, Peter and the apostles are preaching, right? They're arrested for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they're forbidden by law to preach in the name of Jesus, and they refuse to do so. And they are arrested and imprisoned for it. Acts 5, verse 29, this is what Peter says to the high priest when he explains why they did what they did, why they violated the law. It says this, but Peter and the apostles answered, what we must obey God rather than any human authority. So there's a rich tradition of civil disobedience in the Bible, in the Scriptures. Of course, there are these countertexts, these texts that speak about the legitimacy of the state and its power. One of them is clearly when Jesus holds up the coin, right? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and God to God what is God. He is clearly saying there is a sphere of sovereignty for the state. It is a legitimate thing for the state to impose taxes, and you should pay your taxes. But at the same time he was doing that, he was also limiting the power of the state. Render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's, but render unto God's. What is God's? There's a limit to state power, and Jesus was making that clear at the very same time he was legitimizing the laws of the state. 
Romans 13 is another place where we see that. In verse 2 of Romans chapter 13, Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. There is an endorsement of the authority of the state is coming from God. But at the same time, there's a limitation on it. It's not unlimited authority, as we see in verse 4. Why we obey the estate is because for it, the state is God's servant for your good. So when the state ceases to be that, to do good, or to be God's servant, there's a question that arises, an option of civil disobedience. So the Bible tells us these kind of two things, right? It tells us the state has legitimate authority, but there are times when the state goes too far, and you have to make a choice, and God's law is higher than the state's law, and there are times when we need to follow one over the other, and when we have to choose, we choose God. That's exactly where Daniel was. God commanded and called him to pray. The state said, you can't pray. And Daniel had a choice to make. He disobeyed the civil law, and he followed the law of God. So the question for us is, does that ever come up for us? Well, that's a good question. Now, if I was, uh, you know, like, like Mitchell, I was doing something in, in, in China, maybe, or in certain countries where it's illegal to preach the gospel or to hold worship assemblies. And this would be a very easy question to answer, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, this is, you know, in parts of the world, this would be a duh. Yeah, of course we have to do this. But you don't live there. I don't live there. Most people watching this aren't living in that type of environment. We freely gather for worship. So is there anything here in the West for us? Well, first I want to make sure we carve out what we're talking about here is religious civil disobedience, or religious freedom. So there's a whole area of civil disobedience in the civil rights movement. You know, Daniel's situation is not the Rosa Parks situation. Maybe the Hebrew midwives is a better analogy for that. But there's a whole realm of times when we may be called for reasons of social justice to disobey the law. But we're not talking about that this morning because Daniel's was about private, personal, religious observance. Pray. So let's do a little law school. Want to have a little law school class? I know you're all excited. I love law school because law school is a place where you kind of fool around with hypotheticals, right? You look at different examples. You press things to figure out, does it apply here? What about there? So here we are in the 21st century America. Does this apply to us at all? Well, let's take some hypotheticals. Let's well. Not even all that hypothetical, right? The idea of the pandemic. A lot of people in the Christian church claim that, hey, you shut down a church, right? You require people to wear masks. This is a violation of our rights. This is the Daniel situation. I was never persuaded. To this day, I'm still not persuaded that that's the case, that that is right. We were never barred from worshiping. I, I, we might have made choices, perhaps, that weren't all perfect in our own decision-making as a church. But we could gather together in a variety of ways. We found ways to worship. We weren't prohibited from worshiping. And there was a legitimate reason. And it was applied across the board to a variety of, of public institutions. It wasn't as if we were being singled out because of our faith. We can argue about if, if things go on too long or maybe if it gets overreaching or whatever. But I think at, at its core, I don't think that really is the case. You might disagree. Your mileage may vary. It's up to you. 
That's okay, by the way. This is kind of like the opinion page of the, of the sermon. <laughs> you can disagree with me. Let's take the case of the cake baker. This is a little bit more, perhaps closer, right? So in 2017, I got here the, this, the actual decision of the Supreme Court in Masterpiece Cake Shop Limited et al. versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission et al. I love Supreme Court opinions. They're very entertaining to read. They used to be more entertaining to read. But, uh, so this is the case, basically. Here are the facts. Masterpiece Cake Shop Limited is a Colorado bakery owned and operated by Jack Phillips, an expert baker and devout Christian. In 2012, he told a same-sex couple that he would not create a cake for their wedding celebration because of his religious opposition to same-sex marriages, marriages that Colorado did not then recognize, but that he would sell them other baked goods like birthday cakes, etc., so you get the fact pattern, right? This guy has a, he has a cake shop. He's really good at it, what he does. He's very popular. He creates amazingly beautiful cakes. And he's asked to do that for a same-sex couple's wedding. And he refuses to do that under religious grounds. He says, I'll make a birthday cake for you. You can buy it. You know, he's not prohibiting. Uh, but for that reason, because of his opposition on a religious basis to same-sex marriage. Now, what do you think about that? Is that the Daniel situation? Well, we could think about some ways it's distinct, right? Daniel's situation was a government prohibition against praying, right? Doing an act of worship that we're required to do. This is almost like the opposite, right? This is almost like Meshach and Shadrach. This is compelling this person, at least in their conscience, to do something that they was against their conscience. It wasn't really prohibiting from doing. It was compelling to do. The other thing is the whole public nature of it, right? This is a place of a public accommodation. It's a cake bakery. It's not a church. And, and Anthony Kennedy, who wrote the, the majority opinion in this, talks about that. If this was a case where, you know, somebody came in and told a minister in a church, you have to marry a same-sex couple against your conscience, your religious beliefs, well, that would be wrong. But this is, you know, a cake shop. Is that a different situation, a place of public business? You've got the whole issue that we live in a pluralist society, right? We don't live in Old Testament Israel. The United States is not Israel. And so we got this whole public thing. So I'm not quite sure that even fits here exactly. Maybe, maybe a little closer. It's an interesting case to read, by the way, because it gets into the whole idea of him viewing himself as an artist and being compelled as an artist to do something against his conscience with his art, and that's a whole other area. And, and another case just like this is before the Supreme Court now with a graphic designer who has a similar situation. Maybe we're a little closer, but not quite. I think perhaps the only one I could really draw, maybe you have other ideas, is the idea of what might happen in preaching in the church. That someday, maybe, the New York, New York State will say to me, you can't preach that portion of the Bible. And that's not beyond the pale you know, of possibility. If you look to our neighbors to the north, some things, interesting things are going on up there, right, about this. And that could happen. And then I think we're in a different category. We may then be in the Daniel category where the state is prohibiting very similar, and, and perhaps we could argue to what the apostles were facing. You can't preach that portion of God's word. And we might be there. 
But I think this book of Daniel, and I think this chapter of Daniel, calls us to think about that, that there will be times when the law of the state will conflict with the law of God, and we have to make a choice. And Daniel made that choice. And he was willing to suffer the consequences. And note, he didn't do it violently. He did it privately. He didn't go have a Facebook campaign about it. He took it. He did it in his own personal, private home, and, and he suffered the consequences for breaking the law. That could happen to us. Praise God, it's not today. So I think we learned something about civil disobedience. The second thing, and the more important thing, and the thing I want to close with, is that we learn about the greater Daniel. We learn about the greater Daniel. Wendy Witter, in her commentary, closes this chapter with a title heading, The Greater Daniel. And of course, that greater Daniel is Jesus. And she, along with many other commentators, have noted the parallels, particularly in this chapter, between Daniel and Jesus. How Daniel foreshadows, how he typifies the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you a few of those. These are some parallels that come from Tremper Longman. Daniel, what happens to him? He's framed on false charges based on jealousy of the leaders over his success and over his integrity. Of course, Jesus was framed by the religious leaders because of his success and because of his integrity. They couldn't find something, they trumped it up. Secondly, Daniel was arrested while praying. While praying to God, Jesus was rested in the Garden of Gethsemane while praying to God. In Daniel's story, we have the government leader, Darius. He's trying to help Daniel. He feels like his hands are tied by political realities beyond his control. And of course, in the story of Jesus, we have Pilate trying to release Jesus, finding no fault in him, but trapped by the political realities of his own. And finally, we have that amazing part of the story where Daniel emerges from the lion's den, the stone being rolled away. He comes forth alive from the lion's den, a tomb of sorts. And of course, Jesus emerges when the stone is rolled away in the glory of his resurrection. Yeah, Daniel points us to the work of Jesus, to a greater Daniel, one greater than him. But I think that they missed one here because there's an even more glorious one, one I could add to Longman's list. And that is Daniel suffered and was delivered because he followed God's law. He suffered and was delivered because he followed God's law. And of course, Jesus, born under the law, suffered and was delivered because he followed God's law with perfect integrity. Every yoth and tittle, every jot and tittle of the law. Jesus had integrity that was perfect. There was no fault in him. And he followed God's law all the way to the cross. Perfectly. Something Daniel couldn't even dream about. And because Jesus followed God's law perfectly, he was a sacrifice worthy to God for us. He delivered us by keeping God's law for us. He did that for you. To deliver you from death and me from death. That's why he's the greater Daniel. And that requires me to change that big idea just a little bit. 
Because for those who embrace the greater Daniel, the big idea is not that God delivers those who follow his law. You can't do that. But rather the big idea is that God delivers those who follow Jesus. That's how we're delivered. By following the righteous one. That's the message of Daniel. That's the whole point of Daniel. That's Daniel at his best. Not to give us an exemplary moral example of how to be as a Christian, but rather to point us to Jesus Christ, to the greater one, to act as a signpost to the one who says to us, follow me. Follow Jesus. and You will be delivered by God. Let's pray to God. Oh, Heavenly Father, we rejoice in this morning that we can find our comfort, our hope, and place our trust in Jesus Christ who kept your law perfectly. And that in him we become perfect law keepers just by following him. Because he loves us so much that he died for us and he gave his life for us. That he was raised from the dead and walked out from the stone tomb where the stone rolled away. He walked out alive. Because he lives, we too live. Praise be to Christ. Praise be to the one who kept your law, who kept it for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.